Isaiah chapter 2. And uh, last time, we had problems with the recording last time, so um, just to, to sum up where we are with regards to last time, um, having the previous week looked at the first four verses and the description of the kingdom, once God has redeemed Zion, redeemed Israel, with the nations coming to worship and peace on earth, uh, there is the encouragement in verse 5 for Israel to live correctly now. And we saw last time the sins of Israel, their occultic practice, their dependence on foreign wealth, which they've been specifically warned against. And also there in, uh, in verse um, 8, the land is filled with idols, literally nothings. It is the Elohim that are replacing the Elohim. It's a play on words by Isaiah there, showing that these empty nothings have, been, have replaced the God whom they should be worshipping. And then when we got to verse 9, so man is humbled and each one is brought low. And so man who has been bowing down before idols is now going to be made to bow down before God. They won't be forgiven. Their forgiveness is not going to happen at this time, although, of course, in the long-term future it will. And verse 10, they hide away from the terror of God, and they hide from his glory, and they hide away in the rock and in the dust. And the summary in verse 11, which is where we're picking up this time, summary in verse 11 is that the, uh, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the, really the whole section was summed up in, in that and, and also really what's following today in that man is one who looks up he's haughty he has his his eyes literally are lifted up but he'll be brought low he'll be brought down he lifts himself up and god will humble him because ultimately god yahweh will be exalted in that day and that's where now we pick up in verse 12 so i'll read through verses 12 through 22 and then we'll pray and then we'll press on. For Yahweh of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and all the oaks of Bashan, all the lofty mountains and all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, the lofty pride of men will be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terror, terrify the earth. 
In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Let's pray. Father, as we press on now in chapter 2, I pray that we would be able to understand this passage, Lord. We thank you that your Holy Spirit illuminates his word. May, Lord, we be transformed by your word. May we be changed by it. And may you be glorified through the preaching of it. Amen. Amen. So verse 11 is where we ended last time. The haughty, the, the, the uh, lifted up looks of men shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So we have in the beginning of chapter 2 when God has been exalted. And then we have the current situation that will, as we've seen at the end of chapter 1, there needs to be redemption and why the judgment of God is against them. And we're told that the, partly this resolution is going to happen because God will take those who've lifted themselves up. He'll take those who are, pride, uh, are, are proud and he'll, he'll take those people and he'll bring them down so that he alone will be exalted in that day. And that, that day where we end verse 11 is what is picked up then in verse 12 because we're told for, there's your linking word, Yahweh of hosts has a day. He has a day that is against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and shall be brought low. So we'll go on to talk about this but this phrase that day is clearly the focus of this next section of Isaiah. It's mentioned here in verse 11. We'll see it again in verse 17. It's there again in verse 20. In chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 18. And in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. That day, that day, that day, that day. There is this continual repetition of that day. And the day is the day of Yahweh. The day of the Lord as it is commonly known. For the Lord of hosts, he has a day. This is the Lord's day. I, I have to say that um, there are many reasons why I struggle with Christians using the term the Lord's day to mean Sunday. Many, many reasons. Firstly, it's because it's typically used with the implication that Sunday is somehow a Christian Sabbath, a, a transference from uh, Saturday to Sunday in the New Covenant, which is a completely non-biblical concept that's really church tradition more than anything else. It's also because um, the phrase the Lord's Day is not anywhere used in the New Testament to speak of Sunday or the Sabbath. And also because it implies that Sunday is somehow a day that is more God's than any other. I mean, isn't every day equally the Lord's day? So there's all sorts of reasons. But I think the biggest problem I have with it is because there is a phrase used reoccurringly in the Bible, the Lord's day, which is not a day of the week. It's not a day of worship, a day of anything special, other than a day of special judgment. The day of the Lord 
um, is the day when God will put things right through judgment. He will put things right through judgment. And as we come into the book of Revelation, which is I keep trying to tell people, the first 19 chapters is, is, you know, people say, oh, Revelation, it's so confusing, it's so hard to... Most of it is just repetition of the Old Testament, particularly in the first 19 chapters. And Revelation calls the period that the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord, typically calls it the tribulation or the great tribulation. And there is this period, and we're told in Revelation how long it is. It's going to be a period of seven years. You say, oh, hold on a second, doesn't a day in the Bible always literally mean a day? Isn't that the argument in Genesis 1? No, that's not the argument in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we're told day 1, day 2, day 3. And whenever the word day is used with a number, with a numeral, it always means a literal day, a 24-hour period of time. But the phrase day can refer, when it's alone, without a numeral, to a larger and longer period of time. And it's very clear from all the Old Testament references to the day of the Lord that there's going to be a lot more going on than would occur within a single 24-hour period of time. So on the day of the Lord, God is going to be exalted and man will be brought down. The man, men who have... Um, being proud, people who've lifted themselves up, God will humble them on that day so that he will be exalted. And it says in verse 12 specifically that he has this day that is against all that is proud and lofty. It's a time of judgment against those who pit themselves against God, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. And that really is our central theme in this whole passage. Man lifts himself up, God puts him down low. And equally, as we know from elsewhere, when man humbles himself, God lifts him up. We spoke at length about this last time. Now notice as we go through from verse 12, that when God brings this time of judgment, the day of the Lord, it is in a general sense a judgment against all things lifted up, all things that um, have pitted themselves against God. But from verse 13, we have a specific list. So let's go through them. Against the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against the oaks of Bashan. So God, in his judgment, is going to judge trees. What's that all about? Well, we've already seen in previous passages the reference to oaks and how these trees would be used to make idols and to make the idols. So the judgment here is really again pointing the finger at idolatry, that these trees were used to make the idols. And this is an example of man lifting up himself, tr trusting in anything other than God. Then we have against the lofty mountains and the uplifted hills and against every high tower and every fortified wall. And again, we've seen this reference to towers and uh, sorry, mountains and hills already, and I've mentioned this before. Worth repeating again, though, that mountains and hills were the dwelling place of gods, of gods, plural, deities in ancient thinking. Hence, God dwelling on the mountain in uh, chapter 2 in the first few verses. So, um, there's two possibilities here in verse 14, that the mountains and hills are references to the dwelling place of gods, and other words, in this context, the idols which they worship. 
Alternatively, and perhaps in addition, as it kind of fade, uh, drifts into the next verse, that these are places where there are uh, places of safety, that geographically are places where you would build a city, where you would have protection naturally. Because in verse 15, we go on and see he's against every high tower and against every fortified wall, these defensive towers and these city walls. And, and then in verse 16, when he talks about the ships of Tarshish, and all the beautiful craft, he's again making that reference to foreign wealth and foreigners that they have trusted in. And what this list all have in common is that these are the things that man puts aside God for and places their trust in. And in trusting in things other than God, they show themselves to be proud. You say, well, how? They're trusting in them not themselves but of course what they're doing is they're looking at god they're looking at his warnings they're looking at his commandments and they're saying i know better and that's the pride of man that's the sin uh, that god is going to bring down anybody who would say there is no God, anyone who say, would say that Yahweh is not God, anyone who would say that Jesus Christ is not Lord, these people are going to be humbled when God exalts himself in the time of tribulation and lifts himself up. And so in verse 17, to sandwich this section, this section of the humbling of every lifted up thing, he repeats pretty much exactly what was said in verse 11. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For those of you with uh, eager eyes who can spot the little details, the key distinction between verse 11 and verse 17 is verse 17 is more generally is more generally a, um, a summary of the, the humbling of anything lifted up. But specifically in verse 11, there is the reference to looks. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. And uh, this idea of looking and seeing has been a central theme already of Isaiah. We're building to chapter 6, and uh, we're going to see more of that in a moment. But the result of all of this judgment, the main result of it, and ultimately I guess the main result is in verse 17, that verse 11 will be fulfilled, that everything will be brought down. But the other key result of man being humbled, if you like the result of the result, is in verse 18, and the idols shall utterly pass away. When God exalts himself, when he brings down everybody, everything that everybody has trusted in, then there won't be idols anymore. We, uh, you know, we've, I think we've referenced this before, but for us, worshipping Baal is probably not something we're going to do. I don't like it when kids have pictures on their walls of their famous their favorite athletes or pop stars, and someone says, oh, that's idol worship. No, it's not. 
Idol worship, the nearest that we have today, is when we place our trust in other things other than God. And we all do it to some degree, maybe not to the degree of idol worship, but we all have this tendency to place our trust elsewhere, in, in our riches, in, in the system, in, in government, in all sorts of things, other than trusting in God. And you know why we do that? Because it's really scary to trust in God. Because we can't see God. But we know that there's, there are things here where we can get help. There's things here that we can trust in. There's people here that we can rely on. And to trust in God is really hard for us. Though it shouldn't be. If we really believe in him and we know who he is. And what's going to happen at that day, that time of tribulation, what's going to happen is that everything that they have trusted in is going to be taken away from them so they cannot trust in them anymore. And I tell you, I see that in, in my life, I see that in the life of other Christians, where again and again, the things that we place our trust in, the things that we elevate above God, he takes away. So that we can't. And, and sometimes we look at someone who goes through great hardship and we think that's really, that's really sad that they have to go through such a difficult time. That's not good, that's not nice. But sometimes it's the greatest blessing because the people who sometimes endure and suffer much are those for whom God has given the privilege of being taught not to trust in other things. And I think that we need to understand that even good things that God gives us can become things that, uh, that can become idols to us. A friend once told me a story of a person who was a, a, an elder of a church whose uh, life was, was a good Christian life. They were, they were an elder, they were well-renowned in the church, in the community, and um, they got to quite a late age in life. And as tends to happen at a late age in life, his spouse, his wife, got sick and she passed away. And his whole faith just fell apart. And it wasn't until his wife had died that he realized how much trust, how much how much his wife had been there for him. And he had a wonderful marriage, and she was a wonderful person, I and mean, this was a great gift from God. But it was so good that his trust was in the gift rather than in the giver of the gift. And when she passed, he was left in a state where his whole faith and his assurance and everything just crumbled around him. And it's a warning to us. When God cleans up when he deals with our pride, everything that we trust, we trust in will be taken away. That's what will happen on tribulation, and for many of us, it's what happens in our day-to-day -day lives now. It's something to watch for, something to be aware of, because I think that sometimes maybe something that looks really bad can ultimately be quite good. Verse 19, And people shall enter caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord 
and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to, um, to terrify the earth. And so we have, as we saw uh, previously in verse 10 last time, and the people are hiding from the terror of the Lord, hiding from his glory, from the splendor of his majesty. Um, you know the word glory? The word glory sometimes can ju literally just means weight. It could be used to speak of literally someone being large. You know, they have a lot, lots of glory. Um, and there is this sense in which God's great weight, that his great might, that they're hiding from him, and they hide in the, in the rock, and they hide in the dust. Now that's picked up on verse 19, and we're given more details, that the people um, will enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground. Now as best as I can ascertain, the difference between caves and holes, because holes obviously in the ground are typically what we call caves, um, is that the caves are natural, whereas the holes are man-made. In other words, whether you go to a pre-existing hole or whether you make your own hole, you're hiding from the glory of God. And it, it's bizarre. And, I, and again, I, you know, I like to take the word here at face value and I think it would, does an injustice to over-spiritualize it. Just, oh, it's just people hiding from God and not believing in him. Well, that's not what it's saying. It's very specifically talking about how people are going to hide from the glory of God. Now, you remember, this is Isaiah writing in his day. The whole concept of the majesty of God, the presence of God, the glory of God, was a, was a theme that had been developed through the Bible. And the Egyptians had to flee the majesty of God. The, the splendor of his majesty put terror into them as well. It's God showing up and people literally hiding from him. And they're hiding in their caves, and they're hiding in their holes, and there will be this shaking of the earth. And you can see, because it's mentioned in verse 10, it's repeated in verse 19, and we're going to see it again, literally in verse 21, so we'll see it again in just a couple of verses. This is an important theme, and it is repeated. And... Uh, when we get to chapter 24, we're going to have pretty much four chapters that deals with this in a lot of detail. So it's a, it's a, it's a key uh, theme that we have, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But people hiding from God when he rises to terrify the earth. That's the day of the Lord. Now, just so we're clear, he's talking about the same time, verse 20, in that day. Notice the repetition there again of that phrase. It's the day of the Lord. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats. Now, We'll come to the moles and bats in a minute. It's not every day you see moles and bats in your Bible study. But uh, what is going to happen, again, is we see a repetition of what we saw in verse 18, uh, that the idols will pass away. We have them casting away their idols. They're being thrown away. But notice the mention of wealth here. Idols of silver, idols of gold. These idols are things that have been built, as well as from oaks, there have been wealthy ones, 
valuable ones in a monetary sense that have been, been made from wealth. And where have they got their wealth from? From compromising with their neighbours. And this is constantly a theme here, where they compromise with the nations around them, they make agreements, they trust in them, they're mighty, they have this, they have that, and they make compromise to get their wealth, and then that wealth leads to them forsaking God. Constant theme. And I've, I've preached this before, I've preached in Hebrews as well, I'll probably preach it a hundred times more before we finish Isaiah, but I'll say it every time because it's so important we get this. We live in an era where the, the temptation to compromise with the world is as strong as it ever has been. The temptation to capitulate on issues of theology and belief, the temptation to trust in what the world has to offer. And my friends, every single time, even if we benefit in a material sense and in a practical sense, it will lead us away from God. And so their agreement with the nations around them, as we've seen in this section, has led to them being more wealthy, and that wealth has gone to their sin of idolatry. And they made them for themselves to worship to the moles and the bats. They're worshipping moles and bats. What do moles and bats have in common? They're known as being creatures that are blind. They can't see. And equally, where do bats live? In caves. And what do moles dig? Holes. I'm a mole and I live in a hole. And so it is that he's, can you see how he's very clever writing from Isaiah? He's creating these pictures for us to help us remember. The people Remember there's this theme, they have idolatry, the people have worshipped idols, and Psalm 115, Psalm 135, this theme that we've seen multiple times that will come up again and again, and will be absolutely crucial to Isaiah 6 and understanding it, is that the people become what they worship, either for ruin or for restoration. They worship Yahweh and they become more like Yahweh. They become holy. He makes them holy as he is holy. But they worship the idols and they become like idols. Idols that we're repeatedly told have no eyes and no ears. They can't see and they can't hear. So, they have worshipped idols here, referred to as moles and bats, maybe literally, maybe part of um, just the concept of worshipping creation or a, a, or a mocking of what the idols are, but they worship moles and bats who cannot see because they cannot see like their idols. And what do their idols do? What do bats do? They go into caves. What do moles do? They go into holes. And what are these idolaters going to do? They're going to go into caves and holes to flee the terror of Yahweh. You see that whole connection there? It's fascinating stuff, and I love the picture that he paints of the whole thing. That this is uh, what they're going to do. To enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. And here we have that repetition again. From the before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. So again, it's a very similar repetition to verse 19, with just a few words being changed. 
here um, we're seeing again that this day of the Lord is a day of judgment, it's a day of terror, and those who have lifted themselves up are the ones who are going to be fleeing and are going to be hiding. So with this triple reference now from verse 10, rock and dust, verse 19, caves and holes, and verse 21, caverns and of the rocks and clefts of the cliffs, I think it would be good if we want to see how this is used elsewhere in Scripture or how, um, how it is repeated. And to illustrate the point I made earlier, let's turn to Revelation 6. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12. We, in chapter 6, we have the opening of the seven seals. And people think that this is somehow mysterious and John has just come up with this, this stuff out of nowhere. Not that he's made it up, obviously, but you know that God has revealed it. It's all kind of new and what have you. But look at chapter 6 and verse 12. Then he opened the sixth seal. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. Sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood. Stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. In other words, there's a big earthquake and there's darkness over the land. The stars disappear from light and the sun's not there. Whatever has happened is enough to just darken the sky. Whether the earthquake is linked with volcanic activity uh, and that's the darkening or whether it's something more supernatural, we're not told, but there is a darkening that happens. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up and every mountain and island are removed from its place. And so we have these geographical changes that we referenced earlier in the back at the beginning of chapter 2. And verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. There they are, when everything's falling down around them, going to the caves and hiding in a way, it's just as Isaiah spoke of. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? People fleeing into caves hiding in rocks, specifically and knowledgeably fleeing the wrath of God. Fleeing from his terror. Fleeing from his majesty. Exactly what Isaiah is speaking about here in chapter 2, what he's going to talk about in chapters 24 through 27. That isn't to say... Um, anything really about revelation other than like with so much of the bible this is just taking things that were predominantly already known and again and again christians will come to revelations the book of revelation they'll come to say chapter six and say oh this is what does this mean what does this represent how can we understand this has been spoken of by isaiah multiple times the people in isaiah's day would not have understood it as anything other than literally what it's being described and all that John is doing is placing the events that had already been revealed 
into more chronological sequence. We have the sequence of seals, whereas Isaiah, like so many of the Old Testament prophets, speaks in more general terms. And so, going back to Isaiah, we see that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's a day when people will hide from God when he comes and brings judgment against them. And by the way, if you want to see what, what you know, the hiding that they do at this earthquake, there's other judgments that come before that, and you can read those earlier in chapter 6 of Revelation. But we end now with verse 22, which is very much a transition verse. It's a bridge because it's summing up so much of what's happened in chapter 2 and it's carrying us into what we're going to deal with in chapter 3. Okay? In chapter 2, again and again and again, people have placed their trust in other people. And placing their trust in other people means ultimately placing their trust in their gods and we've seen all of that. When we come into chapter 3, we're going to see more specifically the list of people that they have trusted in. We're going to see that there is a greater weight of the burden of guilt falling on the leadership of Israel, just like there was in Jesus' day in the Gospels when the people of Israel were led astray by bad leadership. So that is a theme that will come up routinely in Isaiah. Perhaps not quite as much as in Ezekiel, but certainly routinely enough. And so really, whether we're talking, going back into chapter 2 and as we drift into chapter 3, whether we're talking about trusting in foreigners, trusting in people who worship false gods, occultic leaders, or whether we're talking about trusting in their own leaders who have followed these people, this statement from God is very much the same. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Again and again, God says this, man says this, and we go with what man says. We, we've got to be so strong in the coming days as Christians, churches all around us are compromising. There are things that you would have heard in churches 50 years ago, no one would have batted an eyelid, that you say this in probably another 50 years, you might be put in prison. People will not tolerate Christian truth in certain areas of life. And obviously, you know, with regards to human sexuality and all of these kind of things, it's going to be one of the key areas. But there's going to be others as well. And what it boils down to is simply this. Do you fear man or do you fear God? Do you fear man who can prosecute you, who can put you in prison? Or if you're an immigrant, non-citizen like me, cast you out of the country? Do you fear a man who can take away your income? Do you fear a man who can mock you and persecute you and slander you and negatively impact your life? Because there's all sorts of good reasons to fear man. I mean, there really is. Man can do a lot to us, cause us a lot of harm, cause us a lot of trouble, cause us a lot of pain, cause us a lot of misery. But notice what this comes immediately after. People fleeing from God, hiding in rocks, 
bring the rocks down upon us so that God can't get to us. We've got to escape the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb. Why do we regard man? For what account is he? And look at this description of man. He's the one in whose nostrils is breath. The implication of this is obvious. Who gives him breath? Who gave man breath? Who placed breath? Notice that, of course, the word breath in Hebrew is the same word as the word for spirit and life. Not literally the word life, but the spirit in the sense of having life. God gives you breath, he gives you life. This, this concept here is that God is the one who gives life. He gives physical life, he gives eternal life. God is the one who gives life. And who is man? What can he do? He can destroy us, but he cannot touch our soul. And there is a decision that ultimately every person needs to make. Are we going to fear man? Are we going to be bothered about what our fellow man thinks of us? Are we going to fear what he can do or are we going to fear God? Because if we fear man, we are going to exalt ourselves above God who says not to do that. We're going to compromise. We're going to trust in things other than God. We're going to place our trust where it shouldn't be. We're going to compromise with our theology. We're going to compromise with our practice, with our life, with our walk. And the whole of this section is saying, you lift yourselves up against God and God will humble you. Now I know for us as believers, all sin will be forgiven. I know that for us as believers, every act of pride will be burnt up on the day of judgment like wood, hay and stubble. I know that it will be covered by the blood of Christ and it will be forgiven. But in this life right now, folks, every act of humility will be purified and will be taken with us into eternity as gold and silver. As something of value. Something that we can, we would want for all eternity. This life gives us an opportunity to live a life that bows before God. And as we spoke about this morning, we don't get to choose our life. We don't get to say, I'm going to be a missionary who's going to go and, you know, give my life when I, you know, be a martyr in some tribe in the middle of nowhere who might end up killing me, you know. We don't get to have the, make those decisions. We just simply, we get to live our lives as, as, you know, we make our decisions, but God directs our steps and he takes us through our lives. And each and every day, we have to make the same decision. Do we bow before God? Do we humble ourselves? Do we put him first? Do we put aside our own will? Do we put aside our own way? Do we trust in him or do we trust in other things? We just make these constant decisions each day. And what we all want to hear at the end of it is we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our only test. It's our only issue 
It's not, did we do this great thing greater? You know, did we preach to more people than Billy Graham? Did we, did we you know, give away great wealth? Did we do this? Did we do that? Did we do these wonderful things? That's not the issue. That might not be for you to do. But what it is for us all to do is to be faithful. And as we are faithful and as we trust in him, we put aside the fear of man. We don't regard him, consider him, look to him, trust in him but we place our trust in the one who gives us breath. And as we worship him and as we bow before him, he will one day lift us up. And that is the day that we are all waiting for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, so much that you are a God who lifts up the humble and brings down the proud. So we simply ask, Lord that, we, Lord, that we wouldn't be proud, that we wouldn't pit ourselves against you, that we wouldn't do it our way rather than your way, that we wouldn't trust in man rather than trust in you. Lord, help us to be faithful to you in all that we do. Lord, not just for our own well-being, but that you might be glorified. Amen.